Guys, I'm so pleased to be with you. Good afternoon. How y'all doing? Good. Yeah, I'm doing good, good too. I've been bouncing around. I'm a little bit hot in my kind of salmon top. It's not pink, salmon top. Um, but it's my daughter's favourite, so I'm sure you won't mind. But it's really great to be with you. Uh, if you weren't around last week, Phil started a new series for us called When God Comes to Town. And he did such a brilliant job. And the fascinating thing about that name is that it reminds me of like a Western. What do you think? When God comes to town. I can, I can imagine Jesus, you know, dressed up as some kind of sheriff, rocking up to this kind of old village and like taking out all the bad guys and stuff. You, you got that picture? The problem is that I realized that as I was sharing this, now it's going to be stuck in your mind just as it's stuck in mine. But hopefully, <laughs> hopefully we won't take the analogy any further, all right? But you know, Phil is such a gifted speaker and uh, he shared so many stories. If you haven't listened to it, get on the website, get on the app. You know, even if you're watching me right now, you can park it and do, do it afterwards. But um, listen to some of those stories because it stirs our faith for what God has done and wants to do in and through us and through our nation. Now, that's an exciting thing. My particular favorite story, in the midst of all the salvations, in the midst of all the healings, in the midst of all the restoration, was the, the Welsh revival where he talked about the fact that all these miners got so radically saved that the, uh, the, the ponies, the pit ponies, stopped working. Stop working, what does that mean? Well, all their language had changed. They no longer wanted to hit the ponies, no longer wanted to swear at them, and so the ponies didn't know what to do, which I thought was fascinating. Isn't it that kind of revival that makes a difference even to our ponies that we want, right? Now, listen, we are going to ask a question, though, and we're going to dive into some verses of, of Scripture, but some people particularly ask when they think about culture, when they think about our society right now, is it not the case that we've just gone too far? Is it not the case that the world is just too broken for it even possibly to be redeemed? And I loved what Dr. William Barber said, where he said in response to that question, not only is it not too late, but the timing and conditions are precisely what are required. Dry wood on the altar awaiting fire from heaven. Revive us, O Lord. That's my prayer right now, guys, and may it be yours too. That we say, revive us, God. Pour out your spirit. Do something in our town, our nation, our time, that we would know incredible breakthrough. Now listen, sometimes when we preach, you'll know this if you come here regularly, we journey through a book of the Bible. And so I'll be given a particular set of verses to, to preach from, just like we have done recently with Jonah. For this particular message, I wasn't. It was the free reign, preach from where you like. But a few weeks ago, a friend of mine, Caroline Holly, who many of you will know well, um, she sent me a message. And the message went like this. She said, I opened my Bible today and found this little piece of paper right next to this verse. So today, I'm praying that you will know the Holy Spirit with you, creating purity in you and restoring joy today, Steve, and that it will be so beautiful that it will cause revival. Guys, if I want revival in my life, I want it in yours too. I want it in and through our community. So I'm trusting that that's a prophetic declaration of what God wants to do in and through us at this time. Now, it's interesting, though, and we'll just stick on this image for a moment for me. It's interesting that if you were to look at the expanded version of this particular text, it's from something called Psalm 51. And it's a pretty delicate psalm because it's from by a guy called David who was used powerfully right the way through his life. But this comes at probably one of the bleakest moments of his whole life. You see, David had committed adultery. He'd made somebody else pregnant and was so concerned and ashamed about it that he'd had the, a friend of his killed to cover up what he'd done. Now, just to reassure you for a minute, I've neither cheated on my wife nor have I killed anybody, but these passages, these verses, will still speak to all of us, okay? And so what we're going to do is we're going to dive into them in a moment. Now, here's what I need to do by way of a, curse, a precursor, though. 
oftentimes when I stand and speak, I love to share stories about what God has done. Okay? And I've loved it in the past when I've been able to put up images of babies and uh, be able to tell you that, these, uh, that the parents of this particular child weren't able to conceive. And actually, we got to pray for them after years of being infertile when the medics said they couldn't, and we prayed, and look! And that's an incredibly encouraging thing when you see the end of the story. A few weeks ago, last time I preached, actually, I shared a bit about my debt story and about how God phenomenally uh, rescued me, provided for me, having had thousands of pounds worth of personal debt, and he miraculously broke in. I've also shared stories about people who have been saved and radically transformed and have heard God's voice for the first time. I do need to be honest enough, though, to say that today isn't going to be one of those days, okay? Because what I want to do is be honest with you about the fact that for me, and I know for many of you right now, Life doesn't always seem like it's sunshine and rainbows, right? So this is not one of those weeks, but my prayer and my hope is that whether we're telling stories of a finished work or whether we still tell stories of where we are right now in the midst of a trial and a journey, that God would still be glorified. Because it's Jesus, actually, who can be right there with us in the midst of the storm as well as in the victory, okay? Now, you might say to me, Steve, you've already mentioned Jesus an awful lot this morning. And uh, maybe you're new, maybe that's unusual to you, and you might think to yourself, is this guy trying to convert me? The answer is yes. <laughs> the reason being is because I found him to be true. You see, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And for you, if you are new here, and you're thinking, I don't know what a relationship with God looks like, whether life is flying for you right now, or whether life is really tough, let me tell you, he for you as well is the way the truth, and the life. And he's inviting you this morning. And I want to give you an opportunity in a little while to even respond to him because he's good and he loves you and he's for you. Let me tell you about a little bit about what's going on in my life now because for some people who would relate to this, life is a little bit like gargling lemon juice. So let me take you back around about eight weeks on my wife's birthday. 37 years of age, she wakes up with a severe nausea feeling like she's going to be sick, she can't eat anything, she's feeling really uncomfortable, she kind of brace herself, and we cancel all the birthday plans and you know, assume that 24, 48 hours in, this thing will pass. And we've picked up a sickness bug somewhere from school. We've got three young kids, maybe that's what's happened. Three, four, five, six, seven days go by. Philippa's barely eating. She's still got this intense nausea permanently kind of in, in her body. She's really struggling to do anything, and so we head off to the doctors. The doctor says, probably after 10 days it'll pass, just sit it out a little bit more. 10 days go by, still no improvement, and so we start a, a bit of a journey, which we've been on for the last seven weeks probably, of having uh, many tests, many doctor's appointments, many scans, and all sorts of different things to try and work out what is it that's going on in her body. And as of this morning, when I left her in bed, holding her stomach, and weeping because she's still in such discomfort, we don't know what's going on. It's been a real mystery, and she's lost close to two stone in weight, and uh, she's been unable to even on occasions be around us as we're either cooking or eating food. And um, <laughs> as you can imagine, that's not a lot of fun. And uh, the doctors don't know what's going on. They, they can't work it out that something like this would just come on so abruptly and, and just be sat with us. And so we're kind of clinging to God, and we're trying to think, you know, what, what is happening here? And we've got people praying for us, and, and, and that's been so uh, positive. We're, we're reassured by that, but we haven't yet figured out what's going on in her body. And she's, she's struggling because of it. Now, 
It's bizarre because I think some of you guys will have seen the uh, post that I put out on ePreview recently where I kind of did this kind of celebration. It was one kind of Wednesday when I wrote it and uh, I was like, do you know what? I feel like I've got my wife back. We've been in this battle. It's been about six weeks and suddenly she's dancing around the kitchen. A bit of appetite has come back and things all seem to be going great. And on the day that that actually got published to the whole church was the day that she started feeling really rough again. And do you know what? Actually, that doesn't invalidate the fact that we celebrated that moment. And I would say to any one of you guys that a, a, a journey often isn't a straight line. But actually, I trust that there's something still both to celebrate there, and I trust that God's still working, all right? Now, the reason I particularly flagged this up, though, is because it's felt like it's a bit of a bruising time on a whole number of different levels. And so it was only a week ago when my mother was rushed into hospital because she collapsed with a, um, a, 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 a stroke scare. It looks like it was a reaction to medication that's for a recently diagnosed polymyalgia condition. At the same time, in these last weeks, my father, parents separated, my father, who's had uh, an increasing shake in his hands, looks like he's going for, for tests to try and work out whether he's got Parkinson's disease. At the same time, my lodger, who uh, has been with us for a year now, over, these last, over the last eight days, she spent six of those days in hospital. And for a, a quite bizarre thing where she had a bite when she was out camping and uh, that bite uh, became so swollen and so severe that she ended up having to be hospitalized and have surgery. And although she's home now and wobbling around on crutches, she's been in a really delicate position. Added to that, this last week we've had several weeks worth of trying to diagnose my cats not eating. And this last week, after an awful lot of time and money and hassle and prayer, we found out that she's been diagnosed with a large tumor in her chest. And so this week, we've spoken to the kids about the fact that we're going to have to say goodnight to her. And I get that some of you really aren't cat people. But for those of you who are, you'll understand they feel part of the family. And you know, it feels a bit of a war zone, friends. But the thing that got me in the midst of all of it was the fact that we've got our, our dishwasher broken at the moment. Right? As you do. So Philippa can't be involved in helping. Liz obviously can't be involved in helping. I'm trying to, by the way, so much respect for single parents out there. But we're doing the washing up. I'm washing. James is drying. He's got his drying cloth and he's doing his best and he's putting the things back away. And he says to me, Daddy, he said to me, do you think that we're doing something wrong as a family? He said, because of what's going on with Mum. He said, because of what's going on with Jesse, what's going on with Liz, even what's going on with the dishwasher, do you think we're doing something wrong? And I had to look at him, guys. I had to swallow down hard and look at him right in the eye. And I said, no, son. Jesus himself said, in this life, you will have trouble. And yet, we can take heart because he has overcome the world. You see, you see I've, I've heard of and I know and I trust in the empty tomb, which proves to me the fact that everything that Jesus did and said has been victorious. And please hear this, guys. I'm not saying this because I want sympathy right now. I'm not telling you my circumstances because I want people to do anything. I'm actually sharing with you because if I get to be authentic about the storm that we are in, then I trust that you're going to be able to get to do it the same way. And if I get to say I'm clinging on to Jesus right now, then I guess you're going to be able to do it when trials and circumstances hit you as well. But I actually know, even from glancing around at some of the people in this room, that you've, some of you guys have experienced far more significant and far longer challenges than, than I've just described right now. And the last thing I want anyone to do is to feel like there's some kind of competition going on. 
is purely to say, guys, we need to be family and we need to know what to do in these moments. And so whilst I'm desperate to see God come, him wander into town, bring revival, I've titled this message, While We Wait. Because maybe your circumstances like mine do not seem to line up with the idea of revival coming tomorrow. Does that make sense? Can we dive into these verses together and see what it says? All right. So we know that David's circumstances are also pretty bleak. We know that we, each of us have this hunger for revival. This is what he says. Create in me, this is Psalm 51 verses 10 to 13 by the way. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Now, not everyone who claims to be a Christian is a disciple. But every Christian should want to be one. Okay? Every Christian should want to be a disciple. See, it doesn't mean you have to be perfect, but it should mean that you want to grow in your relationship with Jesus. I recently discovered, you know, that the term Christian actually only appears three times in the entirety of the New Testament, which is fascinating, three times, whole of the New Testament. And yet the word disciple occurs 269 times. It's fascinating. So in other words, the main presentation of Christianity in the Bible is not one who simply believes a set of ideas, but someone who follows Jesus as Lord, as teacher, as leader. How are you doing at following Jesus? Now, I love making disciples, and you'll have already picked this up from me, is my desire is to actually make disciples of my kids, first and foremost. And my first thought in the midst of all these circumstances, how do I protect my kids from this? How do I shield them from it, keep them at a distance so they don't know, and you know, I'll leave Philippa in a bedroom, and, and, and I'll just take them off, and we'll look after them somewhere else. But what I actually feel like we should be doing right now is also modeling to them how to respond to challenges. How do we helpfully, faithfully keep pursuing God and the revival that we long for, even in the midst of such circumstances? I love the fact that my wife had a conversation with our youngest. He's just five. His name's Ollie recently. And the conversation as we were eager to make him a disciple too, went a little bit like this. Ollie said to Philippa, he said, you know, Jesus, Jesus was sinless. And Philippa said, yeah, yeah, that's, that's right, he was. Ollie said, I wish I was sinless. And Philip said, yes, I wish you were sinless as well. And uh, he said, I, I, just, I just wish that I didn't do bad things. And Philip said, yes, me too. I also wish you didn't do bad things. And then Ollie said, I just wish I was like God. And uh, Philip said, oh, well, how so? And he looked at her and said, all powerful. <laughs> you kind of expect him to go down the sin in nature, but apparently not. He just wants the strength. But you know what's interesting, you know? is that God doesn't leave us on our own. And we see in this passage, actually, some words that are fascinating, because this actually is almost like a, a, a prayer that David is praying. He's saying things like, would you create in me? Would you renew in me? Would you restore to me? Would you grant me? And it's interesting, then, because he even, even talks about God's presence as being an incredibly significant thing that he wants to pursue and never leave from. Here's what it says to me, you know. It's actually it's so important that what we do for God, we want to do with God. And actually, he's not finished with you yet. Because some people who even hear me say this and talk about circumstances in my life will be thinking, I just think God's left me. 
I think he's abandoned me. I think he's, he's gone. But let me tell you that scripture is very clear that's not the case. Hebrews 13 says this, God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And so we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. And so my hope and my prayer, and even at the end of this message this morning, we're going to pray for hopeless situations and circumstances that actually have been difficult in your life that God might break in powerfully. And we're going to stand together as family. But I want you as much as anything, even in the midst of those valley moments, to know his presence, to know his peace, to know his hand, and to be confident that he's not through with you. Philippians 1.6, for example, says that we should be confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He's not done with you, friends. He's not done. That means that whilst we're not protected from tough circumstances, we do have a very present helper in times of need. And I would say this is true also of those when we're eager to see revival burst out. You know, I don't know how you feel about talking to other people about your faith, talking to other people about Jesus, but let me tell you, you are not a very good evangelist. That's not very encouraging, is it? Let me tell you, I am not a very good evangelist either. I would actually go as far as saying that, uh, you know, people who you might have heard of like Jay John or Reinhard Bonnke or even Billy Graham, they're not very good evangelists. So I tell you, the Holy Spirit is a phenomenal evangelist. He's the one we want to lean on. He's the one we should be depending upon. And so actually, we, what we want to do in every single day of our lives is to invite him in and invite his power as we proclaim the name of Jesus. Now, what we see in this passage then is that the first thing, if we're expecting and pursuing revival, is that we want to chase a pure heart. And some people in the midst of their circumstances will even feel like, oh, do you know what, have I done something wrong that has meant that this stuff has, has happened? Just as James asked that question. You know, the crazy thing is, if you are a Christian here this morning, if you put your trust in Jesus, that the answer is, as strongly as I can, absolutely not, because he's forgiven you past, present, even future. The entire slate has been wiped clean, and he loves you and is for you. Now, what's interesting, though, what's interesting, though, is that whilst he took everything and it's far from the east, it's from the west, actually, Jesus still says that purity is an incredibly important thing. Okay? He still says that you should be pursuing purity. So 1 John 1.7 says, for example, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we will have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' son purifies us from all sin. Okay? Now, what that means is that there is a place for regular repentance. There is a place for the Holy Spirit to convict you of sin in your life and to be very clear about what he wants you to change and for you to do differently, think differently, go a different way, respond in a different way. Now, what I'm not talking about is this huge gray cloud of condemnation. But God himself will speak to you and say, this area needs to change. And he does it for your very good. Now, with the dishwasher being broken, I went through the manual and I was looking at what could be the issue and going through the, the, the thing to work it out. And it said... What you should do is that you should um, you know, uh, work out where the pipes are, that the, the water goes out and the, the water comes in, and make sure there's no clogs because garbage can get in there and it stops the whole thing. And I'm thinking to myself, this is going to be the best illustration on Sunday because I'm going to open it up, I'm going to clear it out, and I'm going to use the illustration and the dishwasher is going to be fixed. And it wasn't that. 
However, I actually think that the illustration still remains because it is also the case that whilst you are forgiven big picture by Jesus at the cross to past, present, future, I'll tell you what can happen. The sin in our lives can clog up the pipes of relationship. And it can clog up the pipes between people and it can clog up the relationship that we have between us and God because we can still feel shame at times that's attached to that sin. Let me tell you how that worked out for me recently. I was having a conversation with my daughter, eight years of age, and uh, she had been at brownies. They'd been throwing a ball back and forth, but it belonged to somebody else. And uh, you know, the person who, who, who it, belonged, it belonged to didn't want them to do it, was getting increasingly upset. Lexi was having a good time, thought that it was all a bit of a laugh, but she got really told off by someone else's parent. And she came back and she was so disappointed and she was crying and she was saying to me, Dad, I, I was just trying to have fun. I didn't realize it was so upsetting to her. I was just trying to have a laugh. So we spoke about, look, why don't you tomorrow have a conversation with Esther? Maybe you could sit down. Maybe you could just take her to one side and just apologize. And she said, Dad, I can't do that. That would be such a difficult thing to do. I feel so bad. I don't know how I would have that conversation. Anyway, when I pick her up from uh, school the following day, she said, Dad, thank you so much for telling me to do it. She said to me that she was super nervous and that she didn't know how it was going to go, but she, she took Esther to one side and she said, I'm really sorry for, for, for what I did and I was, it, was, it wasn't meant to upset you. And, and apparently Esther had said to her, which was just so lovely, Esther had said to her um, you know, that she forgave her and uh, that she said that I'm so glad I did because now we're even better friends. I just thought, you know what, I'm going to take that as a parenting win. But it's true, you know, it restores relationship when we have a conversation with someone and demonstrate repentance. You know, it was around that same time, actually, when I realized that God was convicting me of something that I had done. Both something that I had done, but also the way my head was running off in this direction. And I knew that I needed to do something about it. And so I sent a message to PJ PJ is one of the other members of the team here, and uh, I said to him, mate, any chance that I could grab a lift with you to the prayer meeting tonight? Because uh, I really need to share some stuff with you, and I know if I don't send this message, I'm going to bottle it. And so, of course, at that point, he, when I got in the car with him, he was like, hey, so tell me what's going on. And through gritted teeth and, and a degree of uh, disappointment in myself, I was like, mate, look, here's, here's what's been going on in my life. And he listened, and he prayed with me, and we worked this stuff through. And do you know what? I'm so grateful for, to have people like that in my life. So grateful that he was willing to. I was so glad and I was so, felt so free having shared with somebody else, hey, here's some of the dark parts of my life. You know, the fascinating thing is that uh, a couple of days later, he pulled me out of a meeting just as the meeting was starting. And I was, suddenly had this kind of pang to think, oh, maybe he wants to have a conversation again. I wonder what's going on. And he took me to one side and he said, Steve, your flies are undone. <laughs> and do you know what? I was thinking to myself, everyone needs a PJ, you know. They help with the difficult stuff. They help with the very simple stuff, which is equally important in my mind. It's so important because, you know, character catches up with us. Get free, get clear, work with him. I'm going to finish um, ah, as best as I can in the time we've got left. All right, third thing we see in this is that we see a hunger for revival in these people, but we also see a steadfastness and a willing spirit. This is what we should pursue, even in the midst of these circumstances. And I just want to honor a couple who are in our church. You won't see them a lot now, but some people will know them well from years gone by, called Mel and Elaine Fletcher. They're with me over at the university. It's a picture of them uh, alongside their fancy car. And I've had the privilege of being part of a group with them this last term. And um, if you're not part of a group, get part of a group. 
But for these guys, you know, I've just been kind of celebrating with them because recently um, Mel was telling me that he's had a friend for the last 60 years. And for each of those 60 years, this friend who is known from school has been completely disinterested in speaking about anything of faith, anything about Jesus, anything about church, just wasn't interested until he got a cancer diagnosis. And the, um, uh, the consultant basically organized a, an operation that he was going to be going in for. He's super nervous. And um, Mel and Elaine were brave enough to say, do you know what? I know you've never liked us to do this in the past, but we'd love to pray for you. Would that be possible? And he let them pray, and he was pleased to have them pray, only to find out when he actually got to the, to the surgery. They'd done final tests before they operated on him. And they said, actually, we don't think it's cancer. We actually think it's a chest infection. It's now completely gone. It's not an incredible thing. You know, it takes steadfastness to pray for someone for 60 years without seeing any fruit, by the way. And what's fascinating is that I was in one of my group nights the other day, and uh, one of the ladies, she was super brave, and uh, she said that actually for the last two or three years, um, she's had a really tough time because she's been going through the menopause, which has messed up her uh, mind, she said, in terms of emotions. It's been playing havoc with her body in terms of physical stuff, and it's been making her feel really low to the point where she doesn't even want to come to church. And then Elaine pops up, and in the most beautiful, mothering way, she said, you know something? When I first came to King's Arms, we were meeting in a school hall called Dame Alice, and she was an, one of the oldest people in the room, and she came for the very first time, and she felt, said she felt so like she didn't belong, that as she walked out of the car park, she said to Mel, we're not going to go back to the church. Someone ran out to her from the church, grabbed hold of her arm, accosted her, is what she said to me, and she said that this lady said, look, there are so many young women here. I'm so very thankful that you're here and you might be able to help and guide some of us through the menopause, which we're all about to reach. Elaine stayed in the church. She supported a whole stack of people through it. And to see her minister with this lady, to see her offer to meet with her, grab hold of her hand and pray for her was a beautiful thing. I'm so grateful for the willingness that people show in the midst of this, you know. We are in a battle. And yet, John Maxwell, he says, friends are created in good times, but families are built through adversity. And even in the midst of difficult circumstances, we need to be family for one another. We need to stand firm, as Ephesians 6 says, in the midst of the battle that rages. Let me give you one final point, and then we're going to pray. Remain joyful in your salvation. It's interesting, that passage says the joy of your salvation. Salvation belongs to God. None of us have earned it. None of us can lose it because it's his gift to us. And then it says that we should be teaching others your ways and sinners to turn back to you. I heard this story recently which just gripped my heart. It was a lady who had been to go and see a counselor because of the problems she was having. And the counselor walked back through to her school years and um, basically got to a point where they were thinking about the fact that uh, there was this particular lesson where a teacher who really didn't like her asked her to come to the front and write with some chalk on a blackboard, I am a failure. And then the teacher then invited other students to come up and write things on the board. What did they think of her? And apparently they wrote some terrible things on this blackboard. The, the counselor asked her, look, you know, how did you feel? This woman just burst out into tears saying, I felt ashamed, I couldn't look at anyone, I just wanted to die. Now this counsellor is a Christian. And the counsellor then said to her, do you know, I believe that something else happened in that room. I believe there was a man at the back. And after everyone had finished, he stood up from the back and he walked over to the front, wiped everything out and simply replaced it with the words, I love you. 
And if there is a picture that you're going to take from this message of Jesus Christ and what Christianity means, may it be that one. Because, you know, what I've realized is that God, when God decided to send salvation, he didn't send an airtight argument, but he did send an airtight person. And it's in him and by him and for him that I live. Lexi, in the midst of eager being eager to, to, to make disciples in her school, recently said to me, there's this friend of hers called Emily. And she wanted to become a Christian, but she had to have a discussion with her because Emily always used to say, oh my God. So she's like, you can't say that anymore. So we'll, we'll, what we'll do is we'll decide that from now on, you've got to say, oh my God. So, so there's a lady down at Ursula Taylor right now who's, who's cussing with fish, apparently. But um, I think it's beautifully sweet. Final story I'm going to share is this, because it's a story that although I've shared it a number of years ago here at the King's Arms, it just grips me every time, because it's about a, a true story by a guy called John Harper. Now, John Harper was a Christian who was aboard the Titanic, and uh, even though you might love the songs by Celine Dion, even though Rose and Jack might captivate you in this romantic movie, actually, it was a very real tragedy, and John Harper was part of the ship that sailed out from Southampton in April of 1912. Now, on the April, 9th, uh, April 14th, as passengers were all dancing and playing cards and having fun, and were, uh, he was putting his daughter to bed, and he was reading his devotions every night like he always would. And then at 11.40 was the moment that the Titanic struck the iceberg, and this unsinkable ship was doomed. Now, either in disbelief or unaware at the time, passengers continued about their pleasures until the ship crew began to send up these flares with the distress signals for other people. Chaos began to ensue. Now, Harper woke up his daughter, picked her up, wrapped her in a blanket, and took her out to lifeboat number 11, where he kissed her farewell and knew with almost certainty that he wasn't going to see her again and his six-year-old daughter would be left an orphan. He began then asking person after person, is your soul saved? Now, as the Titanic began to sink and the sounds of terror and mayhem continued, survivors reported seeing him on the upper deck on his knees, surrounded by terrified passengers, praying for their salvation. Harper then gave his life jacket to a fellow passenger, someone who wasn't a Christian, ending any chance of his own survival. And from a survivor, we learned that he was calling out women and children and the unsaved people into the lifeboats. He understood that there was something more important than his circumstances and more important than even this terrible disaster. He understood that there were some people who weren't prepared for eternity. So at 2.40, as the Titanic disappeared beneath the North Atlantic, leaving a 1,000 people, including Harper, fighting for their lives in the water, he managed to find a piece of floating wreckage, and he held on to it, quickly swimming from person to person, urging them about their need to put their faith in Jesus Christ trying as concisely and as quickly as possible to share the gospels, just simply saying, are you saved? Now, one person remembered, I am a survivor of the Titanic. I was one of only six people out of 1,517 to be pulled from the icy waters on that dreadful night. Like hundreds around me, I found myself struggling in the cold, dark waters on the North Atlantic. The wail of the perishing was ringing in my ears when there floated by me a man who called to me, is your soul saved? And then I heard him call out to others as he and everyone around me sank beneath the waters. There, 
alone the nights with two miles of water under me. I cried to Christ to save me. I am John Harper's last convert. Listen, I want to pray for circumstances, and actually in a moment we're, we're going to release parents very quickly. And one parent, if that's possible, I understand that's not always the case, to go and get children because we're going to end the meeting slightly early, even though we're going to carry on praying. Feel free to come up, Andy. But before I even stand you to your feet, I can't share something like that without giving someone an opportunity, an invitation to respond to Jesus. And so just for a moment could be that you're thinking to yourself, I've never asked him for forgiveness and invited him into my life. So I'd love for every eye to, to be closed and every head to be bowed. And you can pray this prayer even if you're watching online right now. But if you want to make a response to Jesus and ask him to come into your life right now, you pray this prayer with me. Lord Jesus, I want to say sorry for my sin. I know that I've sinned against you. But I invite you, would you come into my life as I receive the gift of your work on the cross. And I celebrate today that you rose again to give me new life. I invite you, would you come into me in my life. Guide me, heal me, set me free and walk with me for the remainder of my days until I see you. In Jesus' name.